0: Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us opportunity to come in to this place, to come in unity together, uh, to come together in Christ, to look to your word, to grow in holiness together. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in us and through us, both individually and corporately as a body, Father, we pray that you would help us to focus this morning as we begin the Sunday School series, that we together as a church would bring you all honor, glory, and praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're so glad you all have joined us this morning as we start this 11-week study, this new series, Through the Glory of God in the Local Church. Uh, This morning, we're going to be focusing on the topic of unity which we will see is a display of God's glory in the local church. And since it is unity that is a display of his glory in the local church, this topic of unity is going to run through each of our weeks together. So if you just flip over your hand on the back side, you're going to see the topics each week and the dates for each week. And you'll see in the extension of that title, whatever the topic is, you'll see the word unity in there because that is a display of God's glory, and so we're going to see his unity through each of these topics as we go through each week. And so then the question, why is unity important in the local church? And so let me start off by engaging you a little bit and making you think through that. What comes to your mind when you think about unity in the church? Why is unity important in the local church? We're going to start off this class on unity, and we're going to start off very simply. In short, this class exists for three simple facts. Uh, Mine is going to be worded a little bit longer than what yours is, but the first one, God has called Christians to be with him forever. But for a time, he's left us in this world gathered in local churches. Secondly, he has chosen to use our life together in churches as a primary method of displaying his glory. And then thirdly, as you'll see there in your handout, we are sinners. And so those two f- first facts, they work together well. They, they, comp- they, they complement each other. But that third one complicates things considerably. We are sinners. But someday the whole world will bow before God and acknowledge him as Lord. But for now, God in his wisdom has left the task of displaying his glory, his perfect character. He's left it to be displayed through imperfect people who compose the church. So the question of how can that happen, how how does that happen? That question is what we're going to look at this morning. In particular, our goal is to understand the opportunities and the responsibilities that we have as church members. And so, how is it that we as sinners can gather together in a local church where unity actually abounds? I want you to think about unity. Look around, we're all different. Different ages, different backgrounds, lots of difference. So how, how does unity exist in the local church? And not a, a forced unity that, that denies all these things. It, it doesn't deny our differences. It doesn't, it doesn't overlook difficulties. or It doesn't compromise the message of the gospel. It, it is a real unity that acts as a compelling testimony to the power of the gospel. That's the unity we're looking at. And how is it that we as sinners... That we can respond to sin in our midst without falling into gossip and into slander? How can we trust our leaders but still recognize that they are sinners too? How can we love people who make us feel uncomfortable because they are so different from us? How can we critique an imperfect church without grumbling? And for those of you that have been around churches for some amount of time, you've probably noticed that these goals are tough to achieve. They're hard. Too often, churches become places of division, of grumbling, of bitterness. And too often, churches fail to display to the watching world the power of the gospel that should be at work within them. Our goal for this class is to explore a practical blueprint of what makes a church healthy and united, sound doctrine expressing itself in unifying love that glorifies God. And so our prayer is that as we leave this class, we'll have a better understanding of what the Bible says about being united together as a church and with some very clear ideas of what we can do to help build unity in our midst. So for today's class, we're going to begin by looking at unity, mainly by using the description we find in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4 of what it means to be a church. And next we'll look at some counterfeit versions of unity and contrast them with real unity. And we'll talk about why or the reason why unity in a church is so important. So if you're following through your handout, we're at point number two, Ephesians 3 and 4, God's goal for the church. And so as we turn there, we're going to answer the foundational question, what is God's plan for the local church? The Apostle Paul lays it out in these two chapters, chapters, uh, actually in Ephesians, starting in chapter 2, actually. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, if you would flip to Ephesians chapter 2, very familiar passage as you begin in Ephesians chapter 2, begins with the gospel in the first Opening verses there, verses 1 through 10. We see in verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were we're dead in the trespasses and sins. But then we see in verse 5 that God has made us alive together with Christ. Then in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But that gospel doesn't end with our salvation. It leads to some very disruptive implications. Implication number one is unity. As Paul writes of Jews and he speaks of Gentiles, and if you look towards the end of chapter 2, that God has abolished the dividing wall of hostility. Look down midway through verse 15. We'll read through verse 18, but Ephesians 2, starting midway through 15, unity it is the gospel it it is the cross by which christ has put to death their hostility after all what what else could actually bring together two peoples with such different history ethnicity religion and culture now what what is the purpose for this unity between jews and gentiles skip over to chapter 3 verse 10 Chapter 3, verse 10, we read that his intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So you think about it. Take, take a group of Jews and Gentiles who share nothing in common except for centuries-old loathing for one another. I mean, that's like a shadow in our context. and It might be something where you have those who are politically in the church at extreme opposite poles. But you bring them together in a local church where they rub shoulders on a regular basis and things explode, right? The answer should be no. Why not? They explode in the world, don't they? In our context, if people were on extreme, po- different poles of the political parties, there would be a bashing going on. But that doesn't exist in the local church. Why? It's because of what they do have in common. They have the bond of Christ. They live together in astonishing love and unity. Unity that is so unexpected, so contrary to how the world operates, that even the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms sit up and take notice. It's amazing, isn't it? something exists within the church walls and amongst the body of Christ that does not exist in the world, and it is true unity. Unity, that's notable, noted for two different dimensions. It's notable for its breadth. That is, it stretches to include peoples as divergent as Jews and Gentile, which glorifies God by reaching people who, apart from the supernatural power, would never unite together remember ephesians 2 18 where we read for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father secondly the the unity is notable for its depth and that is it doesn't merely bring people together to tolerate one another but so tightly committed that paul can call them a new humanity in verse 15 of chapter 2 And he calls them a new family in verse 19 of chapter 2. So it's not just that they could put up with each other, but that they're knit together as one. They're one humanity. Paul reaches for the natural world's deepest bonds, the bonds of ethnicity and family, to describe this new community in the local church. Unity with supernatural breadth and depth makes visible the glory of God. It makes the invisible God visible and this is ultimately the purpose statement for unity in ephesians in the ephesian church it's that god's glory would be on display through unity and that is the ultimate purpose for our church as well that god's glory would be on display through unity and these two concepts will be really important for this entire sunday school series In fact, as I spoke before, in every week, this theme will run through each and every study that we go through, the unity. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at how we see unity in the context of church membership. Why? Because unity is our call as a church. But that calling has some competition, which I want to lay out for you. So thirdly, in your notes, you're going to see counterfeit unity. The first one what we call organizational unity. One problem that we have is that whenever we begin talking about Christian unity, that people define it, or this Christian unity, as the idea that all people who call themselves Christians should organize together, or at least cooperate together as a single recognizable body. They say that the existence of different denominations proves to the world that we're not united. One challenge of that view is it doesn't leave any room for loving disagreement. We can disagree with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters over baptism, for example, and still do all sorts of good things together for the gospel. In that sense, denominations actually showcase our unity in the gospel more strongly than if we merely pretended that our disagreements didn't matter. Uh, Another difficulty with this view is that the end goal of such unity, what would it be? What would be, its purpose? There are many people who call themselves Christians, but who would disagree with, for example, our church on our fundamentals, as who who God is, of how people are to be saved, and whether we even need to be saved from sin at all. So-called Christians would disagree on those. That means that for, or it means that organizational unity for the sake of organizational unity can actually utterly confuse the world about the nature of Christianity and of the gospel. I mean, it's certainly a good thing to cooperate with others for the sake of a common goal. Working with Roman Catholics, for example, to protect the rights of the unborn. It's a good thing to gather together. But while that's a type of unity, it's not the supernatural gospel unity that Paul speaks about in Ephesians. So let's move on to the next type of counterfeit unity, the gospel plus unity. The second counterfeit of true Christianity unity is a bit more subtle. And actually, I think we're at more risk for it than the first So let's start with an example. Let's say that we have somebody who comes into our church and joins our church, and for a living they uh, work for the San Diego uh, school district, and they're a teacher. Who is that person going to naturally build friendships with within the church? Who's going to understand them the most? Who's going to know the things they go in and out of their daily routine? Of course, it's going to be other teachers. And so I would go and say, hey, here's some other teachers and introduce them to some other teachers. Hopefully they would have some instant community and like-mindedness with some other teachers. And they would quickly gravitate into that group, understand that group, and community would be established. And so unity created, right? Mission accomplished, right? Not quite what occurred in that example would be more a demographic phenomenon than a gospel phenomenon. You guys following this train of thought here? Because it happens a lot in churches. Teachers gravitate to teachers, regardless of whether or not they're Christians, and not just teachers. People who spend their day or their hobbies or their time doing a certain thing gravitate towards people that do those things. But in the church It should be a gospel phenomenon that drives people together. And so if teachers were together with teachers, there's nothing wrong with being around people who have similar background, likeness, similar life experience. But it's it's entirely natural to do that. It's not supernatural. And there's no spiritual benefit. But if the sum total of their community, their their church community was built on that entirely, we've built something that doesn't exist in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell believers to come together and just unite with people who have similar life experiences. We come together with those who are in Christ. The bond is Christ. And so what we see in Ephesians is something that unity that I refer to as, or excuse me, in, in Ephesians, we see the contrast of this gospel plus unity. Gospel plus unity is nearly every relationship is founded on gospel plus something else. Yes, we're Christians, but we like to, or we often do, or we are interested in this, and so our community is built on those similarities rather than being solely built upon Christ. Gospel plus something else let's take sam and billy both christians in their mid-40s and both singles and so in a gospel plus unity they would gather together and just find others in their same demographic and situation and that would be the unity they would have that is a gospel plus by the way if you are single here you can hang out with married people And if you're married here, you can hang out with single people. We are Christians. And so we hang out because we stir up love and good works in one another. It is called fellowship. And the fellowshipping together is to encourage us in Christ. And so gospel plus unity is using a similarity to build community that's outside of the gospel. The contrast of that is what we see in Ephesians. It's gospel-revealing community. In gospel-revealing community, many relationships would never exist except for the power of the gospel. Now, just look around real quick. I'm sure many of you would not either either know each other or wouldn't uh, gather together during the week if it was not for Christ that bonds you together. That puts you together into this new family and so in this new family there is a depth of care for one another because there's a commonality in Christ but outside of that the natural affinity to hang out with people of like interests is a natural phenomenon but as Christians we focus on helping people out of their comfort zones to build relationships that wouldn't be possible apart from the supernatural. And so this community reveals the power of the gospel. I mean, think about this. Many of you have probably done this before. Uh, Think about a balloon that's been rubbed against your shirt to charge it with static electricity. Who's done that before? Who's ever charged that balloon? Then hold it over someone's head who has thin, wispy hair. What happens? Don't try it with me, it's not gonna work. (laughs) Gotta gotta do it with somebody who actually has hair. Their hair starts reaching for the balloon, right? It starts coming out, reaching for it. You can't see the static electricity, but its effect. The unnatural reaction of the hair coming out is unmistakable. You see it just starting to come out towards the balloon. And the same is true for gospel-revealing unity. You can see the gospel. It's simply truth. But when we encourage unity that is obviously supernatural, it makes the gospel visible. I wonder if you could think of a relationship you have in this church that you only have because Christ has brought you together. I can think of many in my own life of relationships with other believers, and I've observed others, that people that we wouldn't naturally rub shoulders with. But because we are in Christ, we have a family-like care and concern and affection for one another. We have a deep love for one another because of Christ. That is the love making the electricity of the gospel visible to the world. So does this mean that we should flee from any relationships where we share something else in common in addition to Christ? I mean, should I not be friends with other men in the church who are married or have similar interests with me? And the answer to that is, of course, not. I mean, God uses our, our natural similarities as well. And every church has a certain culture, a certain feel, a certain primary language, even a certain cultural majority. And it would be dishonest to suggest something otherwise, to say that a congregation really shares nothing in common but Christ. Like is attracted to like, and that's natural. But an important question An important question is whether we will let differences become a barrier to fellowship or an invitation to engage in fellowship to glorify God through the gospel. Does that make sense? That our primary bond is in Christ. It's not whether they have the same interests or the same hobbies or the same vocation. They're in Christ. That's what brings us together. So, again, the invitation is to engage others in fellowship, for the glor- to glorify God through the gospel. Will we insist on ministry by similarity, which feels natural? Or while recognizing our tendency towards similarity, will we set our aspiration on community where dissimilar people enjoy remarkable fellowship only because of the supernatural bond of the gospel? That's unity that matters, that accomplishes God's purposes for it. It is a supernatural unity. It's not a unity built around gospel plus some other bond for community. It's unity that reveals the gospel. And so it takes us on to point four in your, in your notes. What is unity? So we've looked at these two counterfeits. Well, what is actual unity? Christian unity. Real Christian unity that Paul talks about in his letter to the Ephesians could be defined as an action, a purpose, a source, and a context. And so the action is love. In particular, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that crosses societal boundaries. Think of Jesus' words. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Next, the purpose is the glory of God in the vindication of his gospel. Unity that exists for any other purpose may well be valuable, but it is not the Christian unity that we are exploring in this class. Third, the source. The source is the love of Christ. We love because, good job, because he first loved us. That is a love that is supernatural. And it can only be explained by the power of God at work within us. If unity is driven by love that the world is familiar with and can explain away, how will that display the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, unity that glorifies God and vindicates the wisdom of the gospel is unity that is powered by our understanding how forgiven we are in Christ. To forgive as we have been forgiven. To love as we have been loved much. Do you remember Jesus' words in in Luke chapter 7? Jesus said, He who has been forgiven little loves little he who's been forgiven much loves much if at any point of time in this class this class becomes just a list of to-do's things that you know you should do and probably can do if you just grit your teeth and and try hard then we are headed in the wrong direction should not be a list of to-do's the unity that we are interested in, that, that God has created through his son, is a supernatural unity. It, it has at its source a deep understanding of how forgiven we are. Not only must Christian unity have it at its goal the gospel But at its core, it must be powered by that same gospel message. And you will hear from this pulpit over and over again to preach the gospel to yourself. To be mindful of the gospel often. Because if it is not powered by the gospel, anything less is merely the work of human beings. It's what the world would experience. And finally, it's a context Love that, while not limited to the local church, works itself out most practically in that context. And so, putting those four pieces together, you'll see a definition at the bottom of the page in your handout God glorifying, gospel revealing love for all brothers and sisters in Christ, fueled by our forgiveness in Christ that expresses itself most clearly in the assembly of the local church. There's the definition. For Christian unity. That's it. God's plan to reveal the wisdom of the gospel to all peoples. And so, point number five on your handout is so, what's at stake? I mean, we've looked at our need to aim for the right kind of unity in our church, that if we don't, we actually compromise God's purposes for the church. But what's at stake exactly? I mean, if our our unity is based on natural bonds rather than the supernatural gospel, what are we giving up? So let's start with the mission of the church. As stated at the end of the book of Matthew. In Matthew 28, Jesus commissions his church as he tells his disciples, in Matthew 28, 18-20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so at the risk of, of oversimplification, there are two main thrusts of the Great Commission. We are to share the gospel with all nations including our own, baptizing those who believe. In other words, he's speaking of evangelism. And we're to build up followers of Jesus, teaching them and teaching each new generation everything that he has commanded. In other words, the second piece is discipleship. So you have evangelism and discipleship. And so when we build a local church uh, unity, that isn't foundationally supernatural, we compromise both of those elements of our commission. We compromise our evangelism and we compromise our discipleship. So firstly, compromising evangelism. Jesus' words in John chapter 13 describe our power in evangelism. Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And not just any type of love will do. The prior verse sets the standard of this love. as He says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Love with the depth of the cross. Love with breadth that to reach from heaven to earth. The love that will mark believers in the world's eyes as followers of Jesus is the same kind of costly god-exalting supernatural love that jesus shows us it is not what many in the world say oh well they love each other and they care this is a supernatural love romans 5 5 it is a love that has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit So does love exist in a community that's formed around something other than the gospel? I mean, can some form of love exist? And of course it does. I mean, there's other communities that people get involved in, communities that they seek help from, uh, like Alcoholics Anonymous, or they, they go and be part of the Rotary Club, or you know, those of you on social media, which I'm not commending to you, but are part of a Facebook group for their favorite band or something like that. Then there's community that's built there. And there could be friendship there. There could even be affection there. And it could be absolutely real. But is that the love that Jesus describes in John chapter 13? No, it's what the type of love the world would recognize. Instead, the love in John chapter 13 and Ephesians 3 is supernatural. When community in the local church defies natural explanation... It confirms the supernatural power of the gospel. So, what is the cost of community in the local church that is not foundationally supernatural? Back to John chapter 13, verses or just verse 35, we see that we suppress what God intends as gospel confirmation. Evangelism without supernatural community is like pushing water uphill it's like doing show and tell without the show part because we serve a gracious god he is still pleased to save souls as we tell the gospel but without supernatural community evangelism lacks the primary witness that god has given to show the power of the gospel to the world why are you all up early on a sunday morning Surely some of you like football, and there's got to be a game coming on soon. Why is this a priority? Because of the gospel work that God has done in your life. And as you come and you gather together, that becomes a gospel witness to others. That the foundation that we have and the unity that we have is in Christ. It's not because we like the same football team. Right? Some of you are like, what? It's not because we have all the same hobbies. The same life experiences. It's because we have a bond in Christ. That we are a family in Christ. Secondly, we see the second thing that compromise. We compromise discipleship when it's not based upon, when unity is not based upon the gospel. Flip over to Ephesians. I know we're still in Ephesians. Ephesians 4. Or if you were in John, flip back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. As you get to Ephesians 4, skim down to verse 14. Paul speaks of the goal of our life together in the local church in Ephesians 4:14, 4, He says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I mean, that, that's what we want at Pacific Hope, right? That's what we desire. A, a body of believers standing firm in our obedience to Christ, which again was a second piece of the Great Commission. I mean, even as we are buffeted by false doctrines and by human scheming, we hold firm to the trustworthy message of the gospel. So what you see here in this passage is maturity. It's, it's holiness that we grow up in Christ. Now, where does it come from? Paul gives us a beautiful chain in, in the preceding verses that shows how this maturity comes from Christ. Backpedal a little bit in, in chapter 4, back to verse 7. We see that Christ gives ch- gifts to the church In verse 11, those gifts are leaders like prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers who teach his people his word. And their job, we see in verse 12, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry until, verse 13, we all attain the unity of the faith. Do you see that? God's plan and purpose for the local church So, who is it that God calls to do the job of ministry? If you're looking there in that text, is it mainly the elders? Is it only the full time staff, pastor, elders? Is it only those who have a significant role? No, it speaks of ministry is the work of the saints, it is all those within the local body. It's the job of every believer. That means if you're a member here at Pacific Hope, the holiness and growth of every other member in our church is in some way your responsibility. Does that feel like a weight? Because if you're looking to the cross, there shouldn't be a weight because it is a supernatural work that God does through us to one another. And so it is a unity of the whole. And what is spiritual or supernatural unity? What is the role of it here? It's the member's responsibility to disciple one another into greater maturity in Christ. But we can't fulfill that job if the church is characterized by division, by tension, by bitterness, by avoidance, or by selfishness. We cannot grow into holiness. Unity is the fertile soil in which the building up into maturity can occur. And counterfeit gospel plus unity won't do the job either. And if we're only hanging out with those that we have just other interests, and that's why we're with them, that is not biblical fellowship. Fellowship is focused on Christ to build up one another not just on hobbies of the world. Again, it's not wrong to do those things. But supernatural unity is because of Christ, and the focus is Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that there are many parts, yet one body. And he has given us different gifts precisely. He says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And so if you only hang out with others that are ears or You can't receive the benefit of the eyes or even elbows or toes. Some people feel like, oh, I only have, you know, I'm an elbow. I really appreciate that, (laughs) that I'm able to do this. Very helpful. So let's say for example, that we have a church where community becomes pretty much non-existent, where people show up for a sermon, but don't have much relationship beyond that. Then we have a community with no depth. Or let's say instead of of a church, I've got a bunch of old Christian friends from my old sports team, and we catch up weekly to hold each other accountable and to encourage one another. Now we have a community with no breadth. And so what's wrong with these two? Neither of them is evidently supernatural. Supernatural and with, without supernatural community, we will struggle in our task of evangelism and in our task to present one another mature in Christ. Supernatural unity is how God intended us to fulfill the Great Commission. I it's a lot going on this morning in unity, but to wrap it up, unity in the local church is to display of the glory of God. That you have people with all kinds of interests, all different backgrounds, even people that are so extreme and opposite ends would hate each other for so long, being Jews and Gentiles, that we'd be brought together as one. And so then what would stand between us? If we are in Christ, we are united in Christ. And the watching world will see that there are people from all different ages, all different backgrounds, all different hobbies, but they love one another sincerely. And there's something different there. And so it's this topic of unity that will build out the rest of this course together. Over the next 10 weeks, we'll be thinking practically about how we can build a church whose unity protects and displays the life-changing message of the gospel. Psalm 133.1 reads, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And I hope that's your experience with the fellowship that you've tasted at this church. And I hope it's your prayer that the Lord would grow and preserve our unity as a church. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for allowing us time this morning to dig into a topic which we see is foundational to displaying your glory to a lost world. And yet a topic that we don't often speak of. We know that you hate divisions and dissensions and factions in a church. We don't always know why. And yet, when we look at unity, the unity that your spirit has created through Christ, amongst all believers, we understand it's that unity that displays your glory, that your wisdom is revealed in it. So, Father, we pray that you would help each of us individually to maintain that unity, to seek genuine fellowship with one another, genuine love and care, that we would be building one another up into maturity, into holiness, Father, knowing that your word tells us that when we are not doing what you have called us to do, that we are not contributing to that holiness. You've given us each gifts to be used for your glory and the good of each other. Father, may they be used actively in this church, that unity would be preserved and that you would be glorified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.